I've titled the message this morning, The Good Shepherd and His Substitutionary Work. The Good Shepherd and His Substitutionary Work, as we continue in John 10. Would you pray with me? And we'll jump into the text. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the privilege of opening your word. Lord, it is your word that is truth. Your word is life. And I pray, God, that you would help every single one of us to receive what it is that you would speak to us out of your word. And I pray that we would have ears to hear and a heart to receive, that we would apply the truth from your word. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Drew Bledsoe was the New England Patriots' first pick of the 2001 draft. Anybody remember when that took place, Drew Bledsoe? So Drew Bledsoe was a Patriots first pick. He wasn't number one pick in the entire draft, but he was a Patriots, New England Patriots first pick in the 2001 draft. And, and um, excuse me, in the, excuse me, in the 1999 draft, 1998 draft, 99 draft. And uh, I take that back, 1993, I should look at my notes. <laughs> 1993 draft. And a few years later, uh, the offseason before the 2001 season, Drew Bledsoe signs a $100 million extension uh, to his contract. So he got off his rookie contract, he gets an extension. And so, in short, whenever your, your team, as the NFL team, is going to extend your contract to that amount of money, that means you're the, you're the man. I mean, you're the starter. You're the future of the franchise when you get that type of contract. And so that was Drew Bledsoe. He was the man. And so he gets into the season of 2001, and through game one, they win game one. And I think they put up 44 points in game one. And boy, he must be feeling good about himself after signing that contract extension, proving himself as, as the rightful starter of the New England Patriots. And then game two comes along, and there's a play where he has to scramble to his right. He scrambles to his right, he's avoiding tacklers and he gets hit right before he goes out of bounds by the New York Jets linebacker, Mo Lewis. And Mo Lewis hits him and sends him ultimately to the hospital. He had internal injuries and his lungs were, his, one of his lungs was punctured and he had a concussion. And, and the truth is, is that he never saw playing time, uh, but only one time in the rest of his career with the New England Patriots. And how many of you know the substitute that came in? For Drew, for Drew Bledsoe. Tom Brady was the substitute. He was the substitute. And so Drew Bledsoe only got into one more game for the rest of his career with the Patriots, but that year when Tom Brady subbed in, became a substitute, as a backup quarterback, they won the Super Bowl that year. And he ended up winning five more Super Bowls, six Super Bowls with the New England Patriots. And some people would argue that that substitution Tom Brady for Drew Bledsoe was the greatest substitution in, in NFL history. Can you imagine being Drew Bledsoe? You're the one that gets injured and Tom Brady comes and takes your place and wins six Super Bowls with the team that you're on. The greatest substitution in NFL history. And we're going to talk today not about the greatest substitution in NFL history. The greatest substitution period in human history. The substitution of Christ on the cross for us. And this is what we're going to talk about, the good shepherd and his substitutionary work. Our text in John 10 continues this conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders of the Jews. And, 
And he's going to talk specifically about his substitutionary work on the cross. He, he became our substitute. That is the work of the cross of Christ. He became a substitute, a scapegoat. He was the spotless, innocent lamb of God, and he became our substitute. And so in this text that we're going to cover, verses 11 through 21, we're really going to see kind of three things that we're going to bring out of the text. We're going to look at the nature of Christ's death. We'll look at the nature of it. Then we're going to look at the scope of Christ's death, the scope of it. And then we're going to look at, we're going to end with seeing the unstoppable plan of God in the death of Christ. The unstoppable plan of God in the death of Christ. So we're talking about the cross of Christ today. And this is what Jesus declares. So, so let's begin. What, what is, answer that first question, what is the nature of Christ's death? Well, well, the first thing to bring out from this text is that the death of Christ was a work of substitution. That was the nature of Calvary. It was, it was a work of substitution. Look at the text. Look at John 10, starting in 11, verse 11. Jesus continues his conversation. He says, I am the good shepherd. Last week he said, I am the door. I am the only way to salvation. And those who come through me, I will abundantly provide for them satisfaction, eternal satisfaction. But, but today he's saying in this verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down his life. Now, now notice uh, there's other sections in, in these verses we're going to cover where Jesus declares what the good shepherd does. He lays down his life. Verse 15, Jesus said, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Second time. Third time, verse 17, for this reason my father loves me because I lay down my life. Verse 18, I lay, down on, I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. So five times in 11 verses, Jesus says he lays down his life. He lays down his life. The gospel is, the, at the core of it is that the good shepherd, Christ, lays down his life for his sheep. And Jesus is declaring it five times in these short verses here. And he's directly contrasting himself to the religious leaders. Last, last week he called them thieves and robbers. But this week, notice, let's look at the next two verses in John 10. What does he call the religious leaders, the Pharisees this time? Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, I'm a good shepherd. I lay down my life. The good shepherd lays down his life. But he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, Sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus, in essence, is saying this. They are only in it for the money. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, they're only in it for what they can get out of the people. And we looked at that last week with the, the thieves and the robbers, the false shepherds of Israel. They were in it for what they could get out of the people and what could they get out of the people? They got out of the people affirmation in their life. And that they were called rabbis and teachers and they loved to be called a rabbi and a teacher. And they, and they, would, they would parade around in their, in their, in their nice clothing and, and like to be complimented for their authority and their power and their teaching. And, and they, were, they were false shepherds who were only using the people for power and position and for finances. And the Lord rebukes them last week saying that they were thieves and robbers. And today he says, 
your hired hands, your, your hirelings, and that when danger comes, when the wolf comes, the good shepherd doesn't avoid the danger, but the hired hand, he flees. He flees because he's not interested in harm. He's not interested in protecting the sheep. The hireling runs from trouble to avoid pain. A hired hand, a hireling, a hireling of a spiritual leader, when trouble comes, they run they, to avoid pain. But the good shepherd runs toward the trouble in spite of the potential for pain. You guys tracking with that? But Jesus, he says, he says, I am the good shepherd. I love how he says this. He says, the good shepherd is not like the hireling. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and then he is bold in his declaration, I am the good shepherd. That's who I am. And I lay down my life. I lay down my life for the sheep, for, for the sheep, for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. What does that word for mean when he says, I lay down my life for the sheep? Twice in this text he says, I lay down my life. It's not just a random laying down of his life. He says, I lay down my life for, for the sheep. This is the work of substitution. The word for means on behalf of, for the sake of, because of. So when Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep, he is saying that I lay down my life because of the sheep and for the sheep, on behalf of the sheep. I do it for them. It is a work of substitution. The death of Christ was a work of substitution. Jesus died on behalf of and for the sake of his sheep. The death of Jesus was not just random. And I, and I, I want us to, un, un, to understand this. The death of Christ was not just random. It was not just because. It, it wasn't just to satisfy the thirst for blood of evil men. It wasn't just Jesus offended the Pharisees and the scribes and they go to Rome and, and they convince Rome to crucify Christ and so this is just to satisfy their, their, their jealousy and their anger and their hatred toward Jesus. It wasn't random, it was a specific act of substitution. Jesus says it in this text. I died for them. I took their place. I died when they should have died. It is a work, the, the death of Christ is a work of substitution. It wasn't random. Jesus died for specific reasons. Listen, the death of Jesus, he died for his sheep, listen, and because of his sheep. He died for us, he took our place, but he died because of us. Those who are believers here in Jesus Christ, he, yes, he took your place, but he died because, because of us, because of, our, because of our sin. It was because of our sin and it was for us. And it's interesting, the, the Pharisees that he's speaking to, they would have known substitution, substitutionary death. They would have understood it because of the Levitical law and the sacrificial system. They would have known about it. And, and the different sacrifices required for Israel, as described in Leviticus, serves to not only atone for the sins of Israel, but to prepare Israel for the necessity of the Messiah's substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And we see this throughout scripture, but and one of the highlights that we see in scripture that, that, that demonstrates and communicates to us that the work of Christ was a work of substitution is Isaiah 53. I, I love Isaiah 53 for many reasons. One of the reasons is, is, is because it was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. 
This prophecy about the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross was written 700 years, not before his death, but before his birth. And Christ clearly fulfilled this prophecy. But listen to the work of substitution of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The good shepherd died for the sheep but because of the sheep, because of their sin, because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own ways and the good shepherd took upon himself the punishment that we deserved on the cross. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 11 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The crushing of the, of the wrath of God that fell on the innocent son of God on that Roman cross was for our transgressions. He died for us, but he died because of us. For our transgressions, for our iniquities was he crushed. On Jesus was laid the iniquities of us all. The wrath of God for sin fell on the innocent Son of God because of our sins and for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that as well. For Christ also suffered once for sins. I, I, I love what was said earlier by Pastor Miko. It was a, a once for all sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. But 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, which is Christ, for who? The unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Romans 5 Verses six through eight, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Because of our sins and for our sins, Jesus took our place. Because of our sins and for our sins, he took our place. The death of Christ was a work of substitution. Here, here I, I'll take his place. I will receive their punishment, her punishment, his punishment. I will take it upon my shoulders. It would be like uh, the most hardened criminal that you can think of that commits the most heinous crime and they arrest the criminal, they arrest the man and, and they bring him to trial and he's pleading not guilty and so they go through a trial and the evidence comes forward and it's overwhelming evidence and eventually they, you know, they're building the evidence up, evidence after evidence and motive and opportunity and and then the DNA comes out. The prosecution waits until they have undeniable evidence that this person, this man, is guilty. Bring out the DNA. And he can't deny it. He's guilty. He's the guilty party. And he's, it, comes, it comes to the sentencing time. He's declared guilty. And, and now they, the judge must sentence the criminal to 
spend time in prison, either the death penalty or life in prison, but in this case, it's the death penalty. This is what's on the table. And it would be like, substitution would be like, a completely innocent person, in fact, maybe a a family of the victim, steps up at the sentencing and says, I raise my hand, judge. I want to take this person's place. I am 100% innocent of this crime. And this person is 100% guilty. The evidence proved it. Motive and opportunity and DNA have backed up that this person is guilty. But I'm going to take their place and receive their punishment. That is substitution. And my brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell all of us here today, the evidence is overwhelming. The evidence, the DNA evidence is overwhelming. We can't argue out of it. We may try to argue out of it. But all of us, Romans says that no one is good. No, not one. No one is righteous. We've all turned aside. We've all gone our own way. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ on the cross became our substitute. He said, I raise my hand. I take your place and I take your place and I take your place and I take his place for his sin, because of his sin and and for his sin. This is the work of substitution for God so loved the world that he gave his son, what, to be just a good teacher? to show people how to live a better life, to give them another option, the myriad of options to self-improve. No, 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 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to be a substitute for my sin. Real sin, real rebellion against the holy God. God loved me so much that he sent Jesus to take my place to receive the crown of thorns, to receive the whip and the lashing and the piercing and the mocking and the ridicule and the death, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his one and only son, to die for me. The work, the death of Christ was a work of substitution. And so how does this perspective impact us right now? in our life right now. Here's how it impacts us. Listen to me. Listen, this is so important. May we never minimize the death of Christ by making the gospel anything less than a message of substitution. May we never minimize the gospel message, which is what? The gospel message is the good news It's the good news that I have a substitute for my sin. It's the good news that that because of Christ and his work on the cross, I don't have to pay the ultimate price for my sin. May we never take that message of substitution and turn it into anything else. It It has been and it always will be a message of substitution. Lord, put me in for him and for her. And I just say this, it is offensive. It's offensive to God who gave up his only son that we would turn gospel preachers into life coaches. I mean, listen, this is a message of of death and life and eternity and heaven and hell, right? May, may, May we never offend God by making preachers life coaches that are trying to 
Their job is to try to make our temporary life a little bit better before we die. The message of Christ is a message of substitution because of the wrath of God that we are deserved, right? May we never offend God by just making gospel preachers into life coaches and the gospel simply a message of life improvement. The gospel is the only good news for those who have come to understand that they are sinners and that their sin is why Jesus died. See, that, that's the big, that's the big, those are the two hang-ups right there. That, 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 that people would understand that they are sinners, that there is sin, and that Jesus died for their sin. And when a sinner comes to understand that, may we never be offensive to God, and may we never pander to them by just saying that the gospel is about making your temporary life on earth just a little bit more manageable. Hmm? The death of Christ was a work of substitution. Jesus said it five times in the text. He said it, I lay down my life, I lay down my life, I lay down my life. For what? For the sheep. I took their place. This is the death of Christ. This is what we see, the the good shepherd and his work of substitution. And wouldn't you say, wouldn't we declare that he is good? He's good. we, we We have no reason that we should ever look at God and say, God, you're not good. Yeah, 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 I'm, 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 I may get cancer, and yes, I, I may go through difficulty, and yes, I may have unanswered questions about suffering and pain that I walk through in this temporary life, but I can always say that God is the good shepherd, that Jesus is the good shepherd, because though my physical body may perish, because of his work of substitution, I can have eternal life. I can have eternal life, and I can forever declare him the good shepherd. Amen? The death of Christ was a work of substitution. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Okay, so that's the nature of the work, right? What's the scope of it? Well, look, look back to, to the text, John 10, 16, and I have other sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not of this fold that I must bring also. And they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and One shepherd. So what's the scope of Christ's death? Well, the death of Christ was for all who believe. That's the scope. How do you you become a sheep? You believe. The death of Christ is for all who believe. Notice what Jesus says. He says, says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. We talked about this last week a a little bit. The, The sheep fold that Christ is describing here in John 10 is Israel. This is the sheep fold. He's saying, I am the shepherd, and this is the sheepfold, and he's de- describing Israel. But now he, he says something that's pretty amazing. He says, hey, by the way, I've got some other sheep. And he's really speaking to some of these Jews and, 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 and some of the, the disciples. They're going to have to learn the lesson later, as we're going to see here, who the other sheep were. Right? He says, i got some other sheep, and I'm going to call them, and they're going to listen, and they're going to be added to this sheepfold. And I just tell you, that's some of the best news that any of us could hear. I don't know if there's any natural-born Jews that are in the room here today, but for all of us who are not natural-born Jews, that is good news. It's good news. It's interesting, in speaking to the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, she was asking Jesus to deliver her demon-oppressed daughter. And Jesus tells her, no. Listen to what he tells her. Matthew 15, 24, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
says, I'm here for Israel. She says, well, even, even the dogs get some of the crumbs. And Jesus, in his compassion, says, oh, look at that faith. And he heals her daughter. But notice, notice, notice what he says here. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus came for Israel first. They were the sheepfold he's speaking of. But he says, I have other sheep. I have other sheep that must be added to this sheepfold. He's speaking about Gentiles, non-Jewish believers. And with this one statement, listen, with this one statement, what's the scope of the death of Christ? It's global. It's global now. The scope is global. It goes from Israel to the world, from Judea to the world, to the othermost parts of the world. The death of Christ will for all who believe. All who believe, and this is what we see all over scripture. This is a little complicated section here, but track with me in Romans 11. It says, Paul says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, that's to all of us. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share from the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. How do we get grafted in, right, to the covenant promises of Abraham? But you stand fast through faith, through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So the Gentiles are included in through faith. And in the early church, this was something that was a lesson that the early church had to learn that the Jewish believers and the first believers in Christ and the gospel and Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost were Jewish, were Jews that became believers, the, the disciples and, and the 3,000 that got saved. And so, so, so the Jews were God's covenant people and they looked at the other, the outside world and they said, these are not people of covenant. And so we're not going to include them in the gospel. This is a gospel for us. And you remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision. God gives Peter a vision, a sheet and, and unclean animals. And he says, rise, kill, and eat Peter. And Peter says, I will never eat what's unclean. And, and through a series of other visions from some other people, other dreams, and they, 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 it culminates in that Peter's in the house of a Gentile, Cornelius. He's compelled to preach the gospel to Cornelius. Cornelius believes and his household believes, and they all get baptized and listen to the culmination that Peter comes, the understanding he comes to, Acts 10, starting in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You see it? The death of Christ the death of Christ was a work of substitution, but the death of Christ was for all who believe. Anyone who would believe and does what is right is acceptable to God. I have other sheep that are not of this fold and must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd, one flock from many different nations and tribes and tongues, but one flock and one shepherd in every nation. Anyone who fears God surrenders to Christ is acceptable. This gospel message is a global message. It's a global message. The message of the exclusivity of salvation through Christ, but it's a global message. Only one way to be saved, Jesus says, I'm the door, but the message must go to everyone. It must go everywhere. Have you ever had roaming charges on your cell phone? Do we do roaming charges now? 
Did they figure that out now? But I, I still think there's some countries you go to, there's roaming charges, right? What is the definition of roaming charges? I looked up the definition of roaming charges. Here's the definition. Roaming charges are legitimate fees that consumers are contractually obligated to pay. Roaming charges may apply when you travel and leave your home network area and roam into the network or coverage area of another provider. Roaming charges. Sometimes before you go on a trip, you pay in advance, you pay a little bit more for that month and you don't get roaming, roaming charges. It's prepaid, you're prepaying it, right? There are no roaming charges with the gospel message. The payment has been paid. Unlimited exposure with no extra payment necessary. No extra payment necessary. No amount of good works you can add to the gospel message. You can roam wherever you want. And really, there, there's a lot of roaming that needs to take place, right? We gotta roam the gospel everywhere. Then, then there's no roaming charges. It's a free message. The gospel is free. We don't go around telling people, you gotta do this and do that. You gotta add to the gospel. You gotta give me money to hear the gospel. No, it is, there's, no, there's no roaming. There's roaming, but no roaming. You guys get that? No roaming. There, there's roaming, but no roaming fees. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, where? Throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The death of Christ was a work of substitution, and the death of Christ was for all who would believe, and we must roam all over to declare this message that it is free of charge. By faith you can believe, and you can be forgiven. So how does that meet our world? How does it impact us? Well, here's how it impacts us. We must be filled with compassion. For those, when, when, when we understand what the death of Christ was, that it wasn't that Christ and his life was not just a means for people to have a better temporary earthly life. When we understand the full weight of the atonement of Christ for sins on the cross, may we be filled with compassion and may it cause us to roam, to go into all the world, to go into our neighborhoods, to go into our communities, to go on our job, to go everywhere that we can go and to declare the good news of the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross for sins. Amen? The death of Christ, this is what we've seen so far, was a work of substitution and his death was for all who believe. Lastly, this morning, the death of Christ was not controlled by sinful men. So it was a work of substitution. It was, it was a work that must go into all the world. It was a work for all those who believe. And the death of Christ was not controlled by sinful men. Look back to John 10, verse 18. Listen to what Jesus says. He said, I'm a good shepherd. I laid down my life in a work of substitution for the sheep. I have other sheep that must come in. And listen to what he says, verse 18, no one takes it from me. Nope. No one takes it from me. Why? I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. The death of Christ was not controlled by sinful men. Not controlled by sinful men. No one takes it from me. The good shepherd lays down his life. He does it. He does it. Sinful men, jealous men, power-hungry men, fearful men did not take Christ's life from him. He was not a victim. He laid down his life. This is what we see in Scripture. Look at Acts chapter 2. 
starting in verse 22. This is, this is, after the, this is on the day of Pentecost. This is after the Holy Spirit had, had come and had filled those that were in the room. And Peter stands up and preach, preaches the first gospel message. Listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up. That means crucified. That means delivered up. A criminal delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of Christ was not controlled by sinful men. The death of Christ was according to the definite plan of God, according to his eternal foreknowledge. This is the work of redemption. Look at, look at Matthew 27, 50. It was a plan of God, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he did what? He yielded up his spirit. They didn't take his life from him. They didn't take his life from him. He gave it up, and that him giving up his life and this work of substitution was a plan of God from, the be, from, from before the beginning of time that Christ would die a work of substitution according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Sinful men did not take the life of Jesus from him. This Jesus was delivered up according to his definite plan. Notice what it says after Peter boldly de declares that it was a definite plan of God. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So they killed him, but it wasn't because they outsmarted God and his plan. God had a definite plan for the redemption of humanity. No one could take the life of Christ from him. They could not take his life. The death of Christ was accomplished through the hands of man, but they were simply culpable instruments for the eternal plan of God. They were culpable instruments for the eternal plan of God, like Judas was. Judas was culpable, but he was a, an instrument of God. He's an instrument of God. The death of Christ, listen, I know this is, this is some deep stuff to process here, but listen, the death of God was plan A. It was plan A. Plan A for the redemption of sinful mankind. Calvary was not reactionary to Adam and Eve's rebellion. I think we need to understand that. There's some implications to, to, to this that we're going to get to at the end of this message. Calvary was not reactionary to Adam and Eve's rebellion. Calvary was plan A. There was no plan B. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, plan A, no plan B. Our God, listen, our God is not reacting to the evil schemes of the evil one. Our God is not a reactionary God. He is a purposeful God who is fulfilling his eternal plan. The death was a work of substitution and it was for all who would believe and it was a definite plan according to his foreknowledge before time began. It was his plan A for the redemption of humanity. Plan A. Our God is a planning God. A planning God. An orchestrating God. A purposeful God. He's got a plan. Do you believe that? Aren't you glad you're a part of his plan? He's got a plan. Anybody ever watch Mike Tyson box? That guy. I'm surprised he didn't kill people when he boxed. I mean, he was vicious, wasn't he? Tyson had been building up wanting to fight Evander Holyfield. This is the fight before he bit Holyfield's ear. 
the reason he had to fight to bite Holyfield's ears because he had lost a previous fight. This fight right here is building up to fight Evander Holyfield. And this is in 1996. They're going to have a fight. And, and everyone's talking to Mike Tyson about Evander Holyfield. They're saying Holyfield's got a plan. And Holyfield, he's, 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 a, he's a thinker and he's a strategizer. And, and they're interviewing, the press is interviewing him, a couple Tyson, a couple days before the fight. And they're asking Tyson, what are you going to do? And, and this is what Tyson said. People were asking me, what's going to happen? They were talking about his style. He's going to give you a lot of lateral movement. He's going to, he's going to move. He's going to dance. He's going to do this or do that. And Tyson gave his final answer, and Tyson said, well, I have to tell you this. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Isn't that true? Everyone had a plan fighting Mike Tyson until he punched you in the mouth. The cross of Christ was not a power punch to the face like Mike Tyson. God wasn't stunned into recalculation. There was no regrouping. Satan wasn't like Mike Tyson, got a punch on the innocent son of God. And then now I gotta go to plan B. I gotta recalculate because Tyson hit me really good. Calvary was a definite plan of God. The cross of Christ was the plan of God, why, why? Listen, why? Because God is the sovereign ruler of creation, of his creation, and he is not reactionary or caught off guard. God is working his plan that he established before the creation of the world. The death of Christ was not controlled by sinful men. The good shepherd said, no one takes my life from me. No one takes it from me. So how does this reality impact our life? We see how the reality of the substitutionary work of Christ impacts us and we should be in awe, ever declare him the good shepherd. And the fact that it's a global message should call us, cause us to be compassionate and to go into all the world and preach the gospel to anyone that will listen so that people can be redeemed and forgiven. But how does this knowledge that no one took his life, that on, no one took his life from him, that he did it according to the plan of God, how does that impact us? So here's how it impacts us. Devil worshipers who blaspheme God at the Grammys will not have the final say. That's how it impacts us. It doesn't matter what they do. Sam Smith and his leotard red pants that he's wearing and the, the sacrificing, the, the, the whatever they're doing on the stage, they're singing the song Unholy, right? Devil worshipers who blaspheme God at the Grammys will not have the final say because this isn't a punch and a counter punch thing. God has won the final victory on the cross. It was his definite plan. Satan, here's, listen, sinful humans who reject the work of Christ cannot diminish the power of Christ and his cross. Satan likes to parade himself around like he's victorious. He likes to mock those who are submitted to Christ. You hear all the mocking, there was just all this outrage. Right? Christians were outraged at the Grammys and then then the non-believers were outraged at the Christians because the Christians were outraged, mocking Christians. The truth is, is that the death of Christ was not controlled by sinful man. The cross of Christ was God's plan A for the redemption of all who believe. And when I rest in that reality that God is a purposeful God and a planning God, I can look at the world all around me and not lose my hope and not lose my peace and not lose the joy that Christ provided for me on the cross.
It doesn't move me. It, it disgusts me when I see people parade their rebellion against God for all to see. And it, 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 it burdens my heart. It grieves me, but it should fill me with compassion for them that they would escape so they could escape eternal wrath. But it shouldn't move me to the point where I feel like that God is off his throne and his plan is thrown off. No. Sinful humanity will do what sinful humanity does. As believers, we must do what we do, and that is to preach the gospel to everyone, to the Sam Smiths, to others like him, that they may know Christ and be forgiven. Amen? Colossians 2, 13 through 15, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, of Satan and his demons, triumphing over them by the cross. It's done. It's finished. When Christ said it was finished, it was finished. Amen? So what have we seen so far today? The death of Christ was a work of substitution. The righteous for the unrighteous. The death of Christ was for all who believe this gospel is a global message that we must, that we must preach. We must preach it. The death of Christ was not controlled by sinful man because the cross is God's plan A for the redemption of all who believe. The cross is God's final word to Satan and his schemes. Final word. It's finished. As we close here, I want to end with a quote by Charles Spurgeon. I, I love this. Some of his words he uses are a little old English, and, but I think you can track with it. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Believe in Christ crucified and preach boldly in his name and you shall see great and gladsome things. Do not doubt the ultimate triumph of Christianity. Do not let a mistrust flit across your soul. The cross must conquer. It must blossom with the crown, a crown commensurate with the person of the crucified and the bitterness of his agony. Let no man's heart fail him. Christ hath died. Atonement is complete. God is satisfied. Peace is proclaimed. Heaven glitters with proofs of mercy already bestowed upon 10,000 times 10,000. Hell is trembling. Heaven adoring. Earth waiting. Advance, you saints, to certain victory. You shall overcome through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Amen.